2: I'm an MP, and I mustn't say Hitler. Tonight, we're joined by Boris Johnson, Ken Livingston, David Cameron, and Nigel Farage. Round one over to you, Boris. What is the square root of 678? Hitler. I'm afraid not. You're out already. Over to you, Ken. What country's capital is Bogota? Hitler was a... No, I'm afraid not. Sorry, Ken. Next one's for you, David. Hitler. 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 Hitler was. No, please stop it, Boris and Ken. Your round is up. Over to you, David Cameron. A marmoset is from which mammalian family? Hitler. Incorrect. And last question to you, Nigel Farage. What is the name of the infamous World War II German dictator? Uh, this European Union is the new communism. Well, that's actually a bit of a surprise. Uh, was I ever... A member of any extremist political group. No, I was a member of the Conservative Party. Yeah, same thing, isn't it? Well, once again, not only have you all lost, but so have the public. Tune in next time to I'm an MP and I mustn't say Hitler. Hitler was a Hitler. Hitler was a Hitler. Hello and welcome to Partly Political Hitler. Sorry. Broadcast, uh, partly political broadcast, episode seventeen. I'm Hitler. Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm Tin and Duyem. And on this week's show, there is an interview with Hitler. Some stuff about Hitler. And Hitler, Hitler, Hitler. Oh, oh God. I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm so sorry. I'm. I'm just practicing uh, in case I ever decide to get into. Uh, being an ex-London mayor. Um, What I meant to say was that on this week's show there is an interview with Arik Chowdhury about why oh why oh why we don't yet have online voting, there is the dreaded return of with or without EU and I'll be looking at why Labour are in such a mess. Yes, this is a five-hour podcast. Ha! Joke! It is only four hours fifty-nine. Um, Thanks, as always, for tuning in, uh, especially to all the new listeners, thanks to a very nice endorsement from Frankie Boyle last week, which was very good to get. Um, If you are new to the show, then welcome, and don't forget to let me know all your thoughts about it on our Twitter and Facebook at Parpol Bro, or by reviewing it on iTunes, uh, or by sending me an email on our completely unused email address, at partlypoliticalbroadcast.gmail.com, which is unused, it seems to sit completely empty, apart from Tumblr telling me about all the things that I don't have time to look at. Uh, not that we haven't had any emails to the show, of course. It's just that all you clever people seem to send them directly to my personal email address via my website, which I would have thought would be much harder to find on account of all my millions of vowels in my name. I mean, really, politicalbroadcastergmail.com, that's a lot easier to spell than tin and do yet, isn't it? I mean, are you just throwing vowels into Google and it's coming up with the goods? Who knows? Uh, Anyway, one such email that I did receive this week was from Matthew Barracliffe. Hello, Matthew. I am waving, but it's pointless because this is audio only and the people across the road look really unnerved. Um, Anyway, uh, Matthew's email is very nice, uh, but he says that he listens to the show in an urban area and with the volume up quite loud uh, in order to be able to hear it despite all the road traffic. And that does mean, though, that he is hugely deafened by, and this is how he's brilliantly written it, the... Blah, 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 blah bit. Yeah, I guess that is sort of how it sounds. And so, Matthew, I'm sorry that you're being deafened, but I will be honest. I was purposefully putting up that bit very loud in an attempt to deafen all the listeners before June so you wouldn't have to hear any more EU campaign bollocks. It was my attempt to save you people. But despite those attempts to save the people, I will instead save your ears, Matthew. And this week, hopefully, the blah, 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 bit. I mean, should be a shade lower. How do I not know that tune? I hear it every week. Um, Anyway, it should all be a bit better. I mean, it's only taken me 17 episodes to work out how sound levels work. So progress, people. Progress. Um, Also, uh, regular listeners may know I no longer have a croaky voice after I beat it into submission by talking until it lost interest and went away. Again, I am learning a lot from the EU referendum campaigns. Right. Now here is a few headlines. The BBC Charter renewal was unveiled last week, and like Saturday Kitchen when James Martin left, it's nowhere near as bad as everyone thought it would be. On the other hand, much like the new series of Top Gear, everyone is wondering why it had to happen in the first place, and why isn't there anything in it to stop Chris Evans from ever having to be seen or heard by anyone ever again. The few notable bits in the charter are that the licence fee will continue for 11 years, Uh, all BBC employees earning over 450 grand a year will be named, even if they had names already apparently, and the BBC Trust will be replaced with a panel partly appointed by the government, uh, which means it definitely won't have anything to do with trust anymore. The BBC will now also be required to give greater focus on promoting diversity, which is a very good thing and I think long overdue. Although, judging by the diversity in Parliament, I worry that the small print in John Whittingdale's charter just suggests that the BBC have shows featuring old white men, but in a variety of suits, and maybe call it the Great British (music) Borov. Natalie Bennett says she'll be stepping down as Green Party leader, or, as they say in the Green Party, she'll be making like a tree and leaf. No, I am not sorry. During Natalie Bennett's four years as leader, uh, she saw membership of the party increase dramatically, Uh, the party increased uh, its uh, members of European Parliament uh, quite highly as well, and Natalie Bennett also managed to do one of the worst interviews anyone has ever heard that she blamed on having a cold, even though you'd think that having a head full of green stuff would have actually helped her. Uh, there are no clues who's up for Green Party leader next. Uh, recent mayoral candidate Sean Berry, uh, who has the perfect surname for a Green Party candidate, uh, says she won't be standing though. Um, I wonder if maybe they'll just get Caroline Lucas back so they can recycle an old one. Hmm. Wales is in political limbo, which is sort of like normal limbo, only nobody's having fun and the bar starts pretty low in the first place. Both former First Minister Carwin Jones and Plaid Cymru's Leanne Wood got 29 votes each from the Welsh Assembly uh, to become First Minister. Labour members backed Carwin. Meanwhile, Leanne received backing from the Conservatives and UKIP, despite Plaid Cymru previously saying that a Tory-UKIP deal was completely out of the question. It's almost like principles come second place to power or something. Weird, isn't it? It would be a really odd combination for Wales as well to have Plaid Cymru, UKIP and Conservative uh, Assembly. Um, especially as Wales really have only previously had right-wingers on their rugby teams. The Conservatives now say that they're going to abstain from a second vote allowing Carwin to win if it happens and the Assembly has until the 2nd of June to decide before they have to have another election. Meanwhile, who knows what the UKIP Assembly members will do as they're run by Neil Hamilton, a man so awful that he puts other MPs off being disgraced as it would mean they'd actually have to have something in common with him. Other UKIPers don't think Hamilton will unite the party, which is probably because he's only ever good at uniting money with his pocket and fast with everything he does. On May the 12th, David Cameron hosted an anti-corruption summit. Yes, I really said that. Yes, it really happened. Yes, it probably was a bit like Azalea Banks hosting a forum on building bridges and making friends. Just a couple of days before Cameron hosted it, he was caught by a camera microphone saying to the Queen that Nigeria and Afghanistan would be attending and are fantastically corrupt. The Queen was visibly shocked by this, uh, probably because she realised she no longer owned either of those countries. Not only is fantastically corrupt the sort of language only a supervillain would use, you know, along with deliciously evil and curiously minty, but also, Nigeria's civil society groups have actually asked Old Dave only a few weeks ago to do something about all the dirty money from Nigeria that gets laundered in the UK. They complain that many UK authorities turn a complete blind eye to money hidden in our property market, car dealerships and private schools and all the sorts of places that use the clever tactic of disguising money with yet more money. Meanwhile, Afghanistan welcomed David Cameron's comments about them, saying that the country did used to have high corruption, but is acting against it. And that really, it would help an awful lot if the West, aka the UK and US, didn't keep the Afghanistan narcotic industry alive. Narcotics, I guess, are probably mostly getting consumed in the property market, car dealerships and private schools, using some of the laundered Nigerian money to funnel it through their noses. Last time there was an anti-corruption summit, three years ago at the 2013 G8, three global policy proposals were made, none of which have been fully delivered by anyone that attended. Hooray! These three policies were to make country by country reporting public, uh, for an automatic exchange of financial information, and to have globally available public registers of beneficial ownership. all sounds quite sensible. And this time round, well, uh, still… Not much progress. Well, except in the area of public registers, right? Five countries signed up to have transparency of beneficial ownership of companies, trusts and foundations in the UK and its dependent territories. And those countries are France, Kenya, Netherlands and, yeah, you've guessed it, the fantastically corrupt Afghanistan and Nigeria, doing something that will stop them being fantastically corrupt. And do you know who completely failed to meet any of the standards set by the UK back in 2013? Yeah, that is right. The UK. Well done, us! It's like setting an example of how to drive safely by ploughing your car directly into a tree. So, as the Electoral Commission take the Conservative Party to the High Court for possibly breaching electoral spending conditions, you have to wonder if Cameron meant fantastically corrupt as a compliment, hoping that one day... Under him, he'd help the UK get to the same sort of standards. All I can say is, good luck Azalea, there's hope for you. The turnouts for the UK elections last week ranged from between 20% to somewhere under 50%, with Scotland getting slightly higher. The news suggested that this was a good result, which made me really feel that if that was true, I should have got a much better degree at university. It seems to be a consistent problem with UK elections that the majority of people can't be bothered to vote, even though the results directly affect their lives. And I guess part of this might be to do with having a phobia of tiny pencils attached by tiny bits of string, but it could also be due to the inconvenience of it all. A few of my Twitter followers told me that in the recent elections, their polling stations didn't have disabled access, and voters in Barnet were turned away due to missing names on their voter lists and then weren't able to return later on. And then there's also the hours and the locations, and you start to wonder why we can't just vote online in today's day and age. I mean, you can do everything else online nowadays, you know, from paying your taxes, to checking how depressing your bank balance is now that you've paid your taxes, to booking a doctor's appointment because of how sick you feel from checking your bank balance. So why can't you just open up your phone, pop a smiley face by your favourite candidate, and, you know, maybe a smiling poo by the one that you dislike, and cast a vote that way? I mean, when the robots take over, it'll be the only way to vote anyway, so why not get a head start on the T1000s? This week, I spoke to Arik Chowdhury from WebRoots Democracy, a campaign for online voting and tackling growing political apathy. We had a lovely chat, and he definitely swayed me to give online voting my uh, online vote. Okay, hi Arik. Um So voter turnout across the UK last week on May the 5th was between uh, 20 and 45% roughly, uh, and uh, I think Scotland had a bit of a higher turnout. Um, why is it that a lot of the media is saying that that's a, that's a high turnout or it's a good turnout when it's less than half of the voting electorate? Well,
1: I think the um, turnout is probably higher because of the low barrier that's already been set. So for example... A lot of these um, police and crime commissioner elections, uh, the average turnout previously was around 15 to 20 percent. And the elections in um, Wales, for example, is around 40 percent. And Scotland, interestingly, although it was only although it did go up to 55 percent, that's only four percentage points higher than the previous Scottish Parliament election, which was before the referendum. So I think it was expected that would actually be a a lot higher post referendum because of the. The uh, mass amount of voter engagement we saw during that period, however, it doesn't seem to have had a massive impact on the Scottish Parliament elections. Although, like you said, you know, all of these, most of these elections are lower than fifty percent, which frankly isn't good enough at all in any any type of democracy, where really it
2: should be the majority of people having a say on the direction of their future. I mean, do you think people just didn't care about these ones much? Because, I mean, I know, to, to be honest, the police and crime commissioner I knew nothing about. I never do. I don't really know why I should vote on it. Um, yeah. You know, there are, I, I wonder if there's that sort of feeling towards, towards the rules. Yeah, no, I agree.
1: I think, I think devolution is a good thing. However, you need to really explain it to people, what A, what it is, and then market these elections to the same extent that you market the general election. So you see a lot more money is spent on the general election when we're electing MPs to Parliament, whereas you can argue you know, local councillors do equally important jobs. It's just on, another, it's on a different level in terms of your local services and social care, for example. And also the Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly are very important elections in Wales and Scotland, although you don't see the same sort of attention given to it by central government, which I think there should be. But I do agree that some people if they don't know much about it, then they're much less likely to, to probably go out and vote in those elections.
2: And do you, do you think, um, I mean do you think that the apathy towards politics is still a, a problem overall because I mean obviously you say that these numbers are a higher turnout than the last time. Um, so does that mean less people are apathetic than before, or is, is it still a, a wide problem that, uh, that people don't really care?
1: I guess the difficulty is that with these elections, because they're every four years or so, the people we're comparing it to are, are different. So the same... People who were apathetic last time could still be apathetic this time, even though turnout has has changed. But I do think ap- apathy is a big problem. I mean, there are quite a few studies who, which have shown around 20% of people just wouldn't vote regardless, I think, of um, what the issues are or, or who's standing or things like that. I do think there needs to be... Although, I guess, in my opinion, uh, I actually don't believe anyone's truly apathetic. In terms of that once you explain to people what these elections are actually about, um, you'll realise that they do care. So if you say to people, "Oh, your police and crime commissioners decide you know how policing is run in your area," do you care about policing in your area? Everyone would say yes. You would imagine. Mm. So a lot of it is about communication and actually engaging people with those issues, which I don't think enough of. Is done in that respect although like i said there are a lot of people who just probably wouldn't vote regardless because of cynicism and things like that
2: and is it still is it still uh, a big problem amongst young people so i remember that being the case sort of coming up to 2015 uh, general election but then since then uh, there's been a lot of reports how a lot of young people have been joining political parties so is it still uh, do you think apathy is still high uh, amongst sort of people under under 30 under 25
1: yeah. So in the, um, I think in the Labour Party they've found that the average uh, age of their membership has gone down, to, so so it's younger, which is an indication of more young people getting involved in political parties. However, in the uh, general elections of the past the past four general elections, the voter turnout amongst young people, age eighteen to twenty five, has been below fifty percent in each of those, and that's compared to. Let's say those there's, there's aged over 65, where you're seeing turnouts of 70 to 75 percent, there's quite a big gap. And I think there is particularly a case of young people not being engaged uh, in politics, and that could be you know, a number of reasons. But one of them is one of the reasons I think is quite important is that um, politics simply doesn't reflect um, the lives of young people. It's, it's, there's quite a big disconnect
2: in that respect. But isn't that the, you know, or what I've heard people say before is that. You know, young people don't vote. Therefore, politicians feel no need to try and pander yeah, to young people's definitely.
1: needs. I mean, politicians, because because of the the nature of their jobs being up for for grabs every five years, they will mainly focus on people who vote for them. And like you said, you know, if young people don't vote, there's a lot less incentive for politicians to go out and and uh, canvass for their votes because, in their eyes, it may not be it may not have as much currency as, as someone who's aged over 65 or, or whatever age or whatever demographic, who will regularly go out and vote. So, you know, if you do get more young people voting, then you're, I guess you are more likely to get politicians who will cater more to their needs.
2: So it's a, it's a bit of a Catch-22 situation, isn't it, really? Yeah. If, they, if they want them to care more, they need to go out and vote. But if you yeah. want them to go out well, and vote... I think the onus yeah. is on
1: the politicians to engage people rather than the people to engage as much with their politicians because politicians are there to represent and as part of representing you have to engage with people
2: yeah absolutely absolutely and do you think um, because there's been a lot of uh, I've read quite a lot about how they feel this sort of uh, recent electoral reform uh, kind of knocked a lot of people off the electoral register um, and particularly it seems to have affected a lot of young people and a lot of private renters and you know um, do you you think that's probably added to the the voter turnout numbers this time round
1: and it's, it's hard to tell whether, what impact it's had on the voter turnout, but you can tell that there are areas that they really should have done it differently. I mean, the idea of having individual electoral registration is a good thing in terms of um, getting around people, perhaps committing voter fraud in certain areas, or people not even realising that they're registered. However, when you look at young people, for example, at university or in, in halls of residence, the previous way of voter registration was so much more efficient and so much more... Uh, and and ensure that everyone was registered. So it's a university, I think, halls of accommodations that would register just everyone in their halls to be uh, able to vote in the next election, whereas now you're asking hundreds of people to do it individually. In my opinion, obviously people will fall off their register because not everyone will register to vote. So I think really a better idea would simply be doing something like a checkbox when you sign up for a GP, like do you also want to be registered to vote in this area or something like that? I don't think it should really necessarily have to be its own separate um, form, separate thing for someone to do to register. So I do think that perhaps is something that has uh, meant less young people are registered to vote. Although I do think the move to registering to vote online has has had a very good impact. So uh, I think before the general election, on the final day, Of the registration deadline, something like 400,000 people registered to vote on that final day, which I don't think we have seen in the previous uh, just paper-only system.
2: Yeah, 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 because I suppose people can leave it right till the deadline and then just go online. I mean, mean, and I know that's something obviously that you you sort of champion uh, doing is having online voting as well. Um, And I mean, I have to say it sort of strikes me as amazing that we don't have that considering everything else we can do online in today's that you know I can bank online and make GP appointments and everything else Um, I mean what obviously you think online voting would have uh, would make a massive difference and do you think that's just because we're now in a technological age where everyone's so used to you know what, 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 what differences would it make if we could all just click
1: yeah I mean it's definitely like you said you know we do live in a different culture I would say today than we did maybe 30, 40 years ago when we look at the way that we do do everything online, I mean, in terms of banking, shopping, socialising, uh, uh, you know, communicating with friends and family, all of this we do online. Even education is a lot of it is moving online, and that's that is because of the the benefits it has in terms of reaching out to more people, it being a more efficient way of doing things, and frankly, a better way in many respects of doing things. In terms of online voting, I do think it would increase voter turnout in terms of um, if you look at most of the things that have moved online in this country, you've seen greater engagement with those services. And also um, accessibility is a, is, a, is a big thing when it comes to elections. Um, like you said, previously, there's so many elections now and people don't have that much time uh, to necessarily keep in touch with all these things or maybe understand what they're all, they're all about. So what, one thing on my vote could do is really be more informative way of voting. So let's say there was a central voting website. You can literally go on there, find out what your local councillor does before you vote or even find out who they are and what they stand for before you vote. Whereas when you go to a polling station, you're just, frankly, just faced with a ballot paper and uh, a faceless individual on, on that paper. And in terms of accessibility, there are a lot of people currently who are locked out of the voting process altogether. So if you're if you're someone with a vision impairment, or a disability, it's very, very difficult to cast an independent uh, vote, and sometimes impossible, especially if you're, you're blind, you'll have to rely on someone else to cast that vote on your behalf, even a postal vote in that respect. And if you have a disability, again, it's very inaccessible to be able to vote by post or or at a polling station. So a lot of the groups we're calling for online voting are, are disability organisations as well.
2: Yeah, because um, um, I had a few people uh, sort of message me on Twitter the other, uh, the other day on voting day, saying that their their their, um, their polling station had no disabled access at all. Which yeah, is crazy. It's, it's
1: outrageous. I mean, if you look at the the Barnet in, in London, Barnet Council seemed to have messed up their their vote on the day, as and they had the wrong uh, voter registers, so they didn't have people people coming up to the polling station unable to vote because their name wasn't on the register. And a lot of those people said they weren't able to vote on that day because the only time they could vote was in the morning or, uh, you know, they had other priorities throughout their day or going abroad and stuff like that. And, and again, one, if we did have an online voting system. How much more accessible would that be? When you wouldn't even need to go at 7 a.m. in the morning. You could just literally vote throughout the day or if they, if they messed it up during the day, you could just vote on your, your smartphone later on. I mean, there are a lot of a lot of benefits to online voting i mean not just accessibility but also the costs of elections in the long run could go down with an online voting system
2: yeah cause you'd uh, need um, less staff i guess and you wouldn't need so many you wouldn't need so much paper or pencils or any of that kind. yeah
1: of. and when you integrate if you were to integrate an online voting system with social media for example that sort of um effects on engagement would be huge in terms of you know engaging young people for example i mean if you look on facebook and I think Facebook this year had a, a button on it which said something like polling days today. And um, imagine if you had something like that but linked to an online voting website. I mean, you could see a lot of young people, but also, you know, people from all sorts of ages uh, being, becoming more engaged with elections, which I think is crucial. I mean, uh, it's simply not good enough to have uh, people voted in consistently on turnouts of less than 50%, or in some cases 10%. It's just, it's not democratic. I mean, we live in a we live in a democracy, but you know, it could be a lot a lot more democratic. I mean, fifty lower than fifty percent, in my opinion, is is scraping the barrel. To be honest.
2: Yeah, well, it's 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 now sort of trade unions have to have over that uh, in order exactly. to, to have a, a strike, you know, have um, a strike, and yet we, yeah, well, to, we can yeah, have a government I used to be quite
1: against the idea of having a threshold. So, like you were saying about the trade unions having a fifty percent threshold mm. turnout, I used to be quite against it, but now I'm actually I actually think it might be quite a good idea. I mean, it would force a lot of politicians to take voter reform seriously. I think if uh, it meant that they weren't being, being able to be elected unless they could get a fifty percent turnout yeah definitely maybe it's an idea we should have
2: we'll return to Arik in a minute but first and yeah look I'm really sorry about this but it is with or without you with or without you yes it's back no no one sent me a better jingle for it no I'm also still not sorry both EU referendum campaigns have stepped up the pace now that the local elections are over and the bullshit flow.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So, to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, better get 30, better get 20, 20, 20, better get 20, 20, better get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen.
2: Some of my favourite worst things that people have been saying have been Gordon Brown saying that leaving the EU wouldn't be very British. I mean that is just a weak soundbite isn't it, although I suppose he is right. I mean really the British thing would be to stay with the EU and completely suffer even if you hate it, spending all the rest of your days telling everyone how unhappy you are but doing nothing about it. Also, Ian Duncan Smith said that the EU is a force for social injustice. Yes. That Ian Duncan Smith, the one that was a force for social injustice. That Ian Duncan Smith who championed non-paying workfare, who's now saying that if we leave the EU, workers' wages would go up. Yeah, he actually said those things. He also said how the EU harms people who are worse off, and you sort of wonder if this is all just part of a speech in order to make pots and kettles resign everywhere. As well as Ian Duncan Smith and Gordon Brown, other commentators in the past week included the International Monetary Fund. They said that a Brexit would be bad to very, very bad for the UK, uh, a situation that's so dire it sounds like if we leave, we'll lose vocabulary and descriptive terms as well. David Cameron said that a Brexit could endanger peace, seemingly forgetting entirely about NATO and the UN, although I suppose if we do Brexit, the crowing about winning that we'll hear from the leave camp for years and years to come will definitely infringe on any attempts of peace and quiet the rest of the country tries to have. Several of the very stupid papers have said that the EU is now aiming to ban British kettles, toasters and hair dryers after the referendum because nothing motivates people like the prospect of wet hair and no breakfast. This is all, as you'd expect, complete and utter nonsense. Surprise! And actually all part of the European Commission Eco Design Scheme, which just aims to make products more efficient and environmentally friendly. There's 29 products that they're currently reviewing, and out of those, uh, when it comes to kettles, they're reviewing them to make them more durable, you know, and last longer. So it's better to buy them. They'll keep for a while. And with their hair dryers, they're currently reviewing them to make sure that the wattage used is equal to the performance. So your hair dryer could have high wattage if it dries your hair quicker because of it. Essentially, the Daily Mail and the Express just seem to be scared that the EU will stop them wasting a lot of hot air with no results, which I guess considering their usual output would probably put them out of business. And of course, Boris Johnson compared the EU to Hitler, because that is part of the clause for being an ex-mayor of London apparently. I mean, I'm sure as soon as Sadiq retires, he'll be Hitler all over the shop. That's just how it goes. And let's face it, Boris's comparison of the EU to Hitler really works and makes sense, doesn't it? Because, I mean, I don't know if you know your history, but Hitler was all for a united trade union of countries who provided free movement to all people and was created to stop war between member states. Yeah, totes classic Hitler. And also, I tried to sit through Brexit the movie, which, yeah, actually exists, you can find it on the YouTubes. Um, But I should warn you, because within 30 seconds of clicking play, it features both James Dellingpole and Melanie Phillips. And you realise that it is an hour of all the people you hate from question time, one after the other, which no one has ever asked for. And at no point do any of them blow up or get maimed, so it's completely pointless viewing. At one point, someone actually says... I wouldn't profess to understand the detail of how the EU all works. I think some of that is deliberate. Brilliant. Well, I'm so glad you gave your views then, you idiot. Then there is a fisherman who says that the EU has ruined the fishing industry, seemingly ignoring that before EU policies uh, came into play, fish stocks were in severe decline. And let me tell you, nothing would ruin the fishing industry more than, you know, a total and utter lack of fish. As a movie, Brexit the movie does indeed score very highly on imaginative fictional content. But it doesn't have any black or minority ethnic characters apart from one guy in the street that they ask a question to. It definitely doesn't pass the Bechador test. And the only thing I can say that it really has going for it is that there are more dinosaurs throughout it than any single one of the Jurassic Park films. So I thought I'd end this week's with or without EU with a teeny bit of actual facts from a full fact piece I read earlier this week. Again, I know I bang on about it, but do do check out fullfact.org. Um, it really is great for you know actual information without any of the crap attached. Um, so here's the bit of a facts. Uh, Ian Duncan Smith has been saying that the EU is damaging to workers and. Uh, people on lower pay and David Cameron and Jeremy Corbyn are both saying that leaving the EU would be damaging to those people Uh, so we're getting completely different arguments essentially saying that will affect the same people whether we leave or go. So which one is actually correct? Um, Well, here's the thing, with everything it's not at all clear cut and there's no definite answers but firstly in terms of workers rights the EU does give us quite a few of those which is handy. Under EU working policies are things like the Working Time Directive, which guarantees the right to time off and limited working hours. Then there's also employment rights for parental leave, equal opportunities for men and women, and protection of employment upon transfer of business. There were various UK policies in place already, and you know things like the minimum wage are UK law and not EU law, so we would keep that. But You do sort of have to wonder if a government that's currently forcing through the trade union bill has brought in workfare and unpaid apprenticeships, wanted to change Sunday trading hours, thinks junior doctors can work insanely long hours with no consequence, and wants everybody to work until they're 70, you know, would they really bring in their own policies to cover the missing EU ones if we left? Similarly, the Bromain campaign has said that a lot of jobs will be lost if we leave the EU, but. The Centre for Economic and Business Research says that about 3.1 million jobs are linked to exports with the EU. And that's not membership, that is just exports. So there is absolutely no way of knowing if any of these would be automatically lost if we did have a Brexit vote. At the same time, all of those jobs do depend on exporting things to countries in the EU. So that could all become a bit more tricky and therefore, I suppose, could make the jobs disappear. But once again, there is no easy answer, proving that both campaigns are talking absolute bullshit. On the plus side, I guess, if we do leave, and 3.1 million people do in fact lose their jobs, then I guess they won't have to worry about the government getting rid of all their annual leave. <laughs> Every cloud, eh? <laughs> Every cloud. Now, back to a reek. And so what, what are the, because I mean, everything you've just said sounds so incredibly sensible and useful. Um, and I mean, I love the idea that you could be about to vote for someone and then click on the info button and read about them and go, oh no, actually no, <laughs> I'm going to vote for yeah. someone. You know, it'd be so useful to have that kind of information. Um, why why isn't this being put in place? What are the barriers? What's what's stopping uh, the the Electoral Commission doing <laughs> so this? So I
1: think the, the main barrier, I think is the same as the main barrier to every type of electoral reform, which is that. Um, politicians may not see the incentive to change a system that's already electing them in. So when it comes to things like, for example, proportional representation, um, a lot of people think that makes sense, but politicians are are unlikely to change a system that regularly brings them into power. So I think uh, political will is a big barrier to getting online voting in, because again, that's another big voter reform. Let's say you're seeing millions of more people voting that could change that could change the result of an election, really. But again, the, the second main barrier, I would say, is uh, security. Uh, people, uh, the government uh, or members of the public may be worried about um, the security of an online voting system. How can we trust it? How can we know that the person you voted for is uh, the vote that is counted? Or how, what do we do if um, the system is hacked? Things like that, which I would say is a, is a big concern. And then the third main barrier is the initial financial cost of implementing this system. So the government responded recently to one of our our reports and said that they see the cost as quite a big barrier in terms of in, in terms of austerity, for example. Although arguments in terms of security I think are being won and political will I think is a matter of time.
2: Because I mean, would you? I'm, cause I'm guessing that's the sort of other thing that I would think is that there are people that aren't that well. A still don't have access to the internet in yeah. the UK, or, or good broadband speed, or, or 3G or whatever. Um, and I guess there are also um, there's a terrible generalisation, but older people that don't use the internet very often. So would you still yeah. need the original yeah, so polling stations and online voting at the same time? Which then I guess yeah, would be so quite that's, costly. That's, a,
1: that's the poster for our. I'm advocating, I'm only advocating online voting as an option. I think we should keep if people want to vote at polling stations, they should be able to vote at polling stations. If people want to be able to vote by post, they should be able to vote by post. And I think if people want to be able to vote online, they should be able to vote online. So I would be in favour of keeping all three of those. And I think having all three of those actually improves the system in terms of security. So, for example, one country that uses online voting is Estonia. And in Estonia they've actually integrated the polling station and online voting methods together in that, so with their their system of online voting, they have something called uh, repeat voting, where you can vote multiple times over an extended period uh, in an election with only your last vote counting, and that's the sort of guard against people... uh, (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.
2: Right, cool, no, sorry. sorry, yeah, lost know. you then, that might have been my end, sorry. Sorry. That's cool, it's all it's all recording again, you were just uh, telling me about um, Estonia and their voting system, if you if you wouldn't mind starting that yeah, that's from the beginning, yeah. that would be brilliant, thank you.
1: So, um, from which part, sorry, do you want to start uh, just from Estonia? Um,
2: well, I had it all the way up to you telling me about Estonia's voting, so if you want to start from okay, me, cool, cool. what that's they right. have in Estonia, that would be great, thank you. Okay, cool. So in
1: in Estonia, which is one country that does uh, have online voting in elections, they've integrated their polling stations' uh, votes with their online voting method, Um, and that's to sort of improve the, the process of voting there. So in Estonia, they have something called repeat voting, which is where you can vote multiple times over an extended period with only your last vote counting. And that's to guard against things like Um, being pressured to vote a certain way or someone buying your vote or uh, someone, you know, maybe stealing your vote, for example. And um, if your last vote in that system is tampered with in any way, you can then vote in a polling station, which then discounts any online vote that's done. So that adds a sort of extra safeguard to their voting system, which you don't have with just a polling station or just a postal vote. Once those votes are tampered with, it's very difficult to to change your vote after that. So I would I would only advocate it as an option alongside polling station and postal voting, and I think that works a lot better rather than just having purely one method of voting.
2: Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I mean, Estonia. Um, uh, I've done shows over there, and uh, they're incredibly right. technologically. Just on on the case, you know. Yeah. They call them. They have a phrase called an Estonian party, and that's when everyone in a room is just on their phones, not talking to each other, <laughs> which is brilliant. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, I suppose, uh, and I should say that I I think the idea of online voting is brilliant, uh, and and I mean, uh, everything you've said sounds incredibly reasonable. I suppose my only concern would be that judging, I mean, looking at Barnet the other day, yeah. that's that was their new computerised system that messed up their register and all the different names, <laughs> and I. I suppose if we had anyone other than this government in charge of it, yeah. I trust a computerised yeah. voting system. Is there worries that you know we implemented wrongly, or it'll be given to the wrong contract? How can we guarantee yeah. that it'll be a, a decent working system?
1: Yeah, I should have said one of the other barriers is that people don't trust the government with with technology, so it is a difficulty. I mean, you have to get um, you have to get a proper process, and you have to get. Um, proper tendering process, proper checks and balances over these systems. However, you know, even if it's a paper method of voting, there, there are still problems. So if you have a look at, I don't know if you've ever been to a vote count before, but, uh, a paper vote count. No. So I've, I've been to I've been to one before and then you have, what you have there is a lot of miscounting of votes and a lot of um, recounts of votes, especially when it's a uh, close margin. Which kind of shows that not There's no guarantee that every vote actually counts under the current system if people are counting them inaccurately. And I think that's quite important. I mean, you know, every vote should count. If someone's gone to a polling station and they voted, their vote should count towards their election of their representative. And, you know, there are lots of um, examples of where non-electronic services have gone wrong. So it is all about doing these things properly. But if there is a problem, like I was saying earlier, if there is a problem with... An online voting system on the day, um, people can still vote later on in that day once it's been been fixed. So uh, you know the accessibility is still there in terms of you don't have to go back to the polling station to vote. You can literally just wait a few hours and then vote on your smartphone later. It's not too big of an issue if something does go wrong. Although I do agree, you know, if they do do this, it has to be done properly, and if there are any problems. Uh, the person who should be paying for that is is whoever is providing that technology or or working on that contract not the not the taxpayer
2: yeah definitely i I mean that is just like i said That is just my fear that it will get i don't know given to g4s or something and (laughs) half half of it won't work um but yeah it's also a very good point if it does go wrong you can just say oh right well then we'll do it tomorrow instead everyone open their phones click and it's yeah. It's already done. It does. It sounds so incredibly sensible. Um, so, uh, last question, really. Then, um, if people would like to kind of get involved with this and they'd like to to petition towards online voting, um, and really also to you know to tackle voter apathy, what what sort of stuff would you suggest they do? Where can they go? What can they uh, get involved with?
1: So, if they want to get involved with uh, Webroots, I would say to follow us on social media at Webroots UK. And on there, you'll find our, our petition that we're doing to the government. Uh, we're trying to, trying to reach the uh, 10,000 signature threshold to get a response within six months. So you can sign that. And also, if you visit our website, our there are lots of ways you can get involved. But in terms of um, tackling voter apathy in general, you know, I would say talk about politics with your friends. I think it's a very good way of getting people interested. So I think... You know, maybe not enough people are having conversations about this kind of thing. And also, you know, just to get involved with a political party, get involved with a political campaign, because you know, I don't believe that anyone's truly apathetic about politics. There's always something, some issue that people care about. And if there is an issue that you care about, you should just get involved and try to change it. I mean, that's basically what I'm trying to do here with online voting. And uh, I think that's probably the best method of tackling voter apathy in the long run. Is just literally getting more people involved in politics.
2: Many thanks to Arik for chatting with me. You can find Webroots Democracy at webrootsdemocracy.org and if you click on their Get Involved section you'll find a link to the e-petition for online voting. Which sounds appropriate, doesn't it really? Um, they're also on Twitter at UK, and Arik has his own account at Arik Chowdhury so that's A-R-E-Q-C-H-O-W-D-H-U-R-Y. So go and follow him and do all of those things. Thank y'all. The name Labour used to mean all about supporting the workers, but now it seems to apply much more about how much bloody hard work it is for anyone in the party to agree on absolutely anything. A week doesn't go by without someone from Labour attacking someone else from Labour as though they're going into battle blindfolded and at the last minute a Tory MP spins them round 180 degrees. If Labour are still a party, it's one where half of them won't invite the others along because they think they'll ruin it, and the other side have their own gathering in a treehouse with a big sign on the door saying no Corbyn's allowed. Those in the party who dislike Corbyn took the recent election results to mean that he'd failed, even when the party did better than it was predicted to. Where's Streeting, who is the Labour Party barnacle? Uh, In that I mean that no one really wants him there, he's irritating everyone by being attached, but just won't leave of his own accord. Well Wes, he blamed the Havering and Redbridge London assembly loss on Labour's anti-semitism route. Though in Havering and Redbridge, UKIP support rose really quite highly and I don't really think that all those previously Labour voters thought, do you know what, I'm sick of this anti-semitism, I'm going to go to UKIP. Unless I suppose they were looking for a party who are actually better at being racist all-rounders. Who knows? Chris Leslie said on the BBC that Labour need to move more centre to appeal to voters, which isn't at all what they did in 2015, is it, Chris? And that turned out really well, eh? Do you remember? Oh. And since he's become Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan has been making lots of public statements aimed towards Jeremy Corbyn along the lines of We can't ignore what voters want, which is one of those ridiculously obvious statements that carries the same sort of weight as when Bitty McLean sang When it's raining, it's raining. But at the same time, those on Jeremy Corbyn's side have always got an excuse for when the party isn't doing well. MP Diane Abbott, whose main skill appears to be having the power to sound patronising, even when she's making absolutely no sense. Um, She said that the results show that Corbyn is on his way to a 2020 victory at the general election. Uh, Except they don't. Uh, And really, after a few months where the Conservatives have somehow managed to piss off doctors and teachers, their Secretary of Work and Pensions resigned over proposed welfare cuts that he probably would have inflicted himself just months later if he'd stayed, there was the Panama Papers, the Budget, tons of U-turns and all the infighting over the EU referendum, you sort of think, really, Labour could have cleaned this up quicker than Harvey Keitel using Sillit Bang. But they didn't. And subscribing to this new politics that Labour are doing is really great, you know, except when it means that you look really confused during Prime Minister's questions instead of slamming Cameron for being a racist pillock and watching as his face looks like it might erupt like an upset balloon. And yeah, look, I think those from within Labour shouldn't be trying to tear it apart, but then every time there are rumours about Corbyn clamping down on disloyalty, I also remember that he voted against the party from the backbenches many, many times. And I should say that I like Jeremy Corbyn, I sort of think he looks a bit like a kind of Obi-Wan Kenobi of politics. I just don't understand how many times he needs to be struck down before he actually comes back more powerful. I suppose it's worth remembering that it has only been eight months since Jeremy Corbyn became Labour leader. And in terms of politics and it being still four years to the next general election, you know, that's, that's not very long. I mean, it's also worth remembering that the thing is... For Labour to step it up a level, they need to work out, as a party, what they all actually want. I mean, do they want to, as it's been suggested this week, chase the voters who've gone to UKIP? Do they want to chase the swing voters? Do they want to prove that they support the working class, or the middle class, or the upper class? There's a lot to say that chasing non-voters won't make a difference, sadly, so that's probably out the window. A report commissioned by the Trade Union Congress after the 2015 elections suggested that most non-voters had the same views as voters, so the outcome wouldn't really have changed much if they'd all voted, though I'd probably have had to stay up a lot later watching the vote count and I would have drunk a lot more whiskey, and I guess that next day hangover with those shitty results would have been even worse and harder to handle. I mean, what the entire party need to do is be willing to get along, really, isn't it? I mean, it sounds obvious, probably like one of those statements that Sadiq Khan might make at some point in the future. But they really should just listen to all sides of their spectrum, from right, right to Corbyn-Left, and maybe just try and create a manifesto that fits absolutely everyone. As impossible as that sounds. I mean, there's no one that the party membership will vote in as leader instead of Corbyn, and so if they are the Democratic Party that they say they are, they're just going to have to support whoever is leader. Or I suppose the other option is that they could just split into several smaller parties. You know, I guess you could have old Labour, new Labour, red Labour, blue Labour. You know, like a really depressing Dr Seuss book where probably Horton can only hear himself. And that would then halve all of Labour's votes in 2020. And then, ha ha, Corbyn's detractors will say, we told you he wasn't electable. And now after we told everyone he wasn't for ages and kept putting him down, then he wasn't. Ha ha. And meanwhile, all the Corbyn supporters will say, actually, we did okay, and we just hung on all in all and we'll definitely win in 2025 because I'm sure something magical will happen all by itself. And then we, as the people, will sigh as Prime Minister Boris Johnson is found simultaneously having sex with a pig while avoiding tax but somehow distracts everyone by slipping on a banana skin. Okay, very quick one this week uh, for the question of the week. The Eurovision Song Contest took place last weekend and it is, as everyone always says, uh, secretly a sort of political event, isn't it? I mean, not that secretly. I mean, in fact, the winning Ukrainian entry sang a song about 1944 and her grandfather being killed by Stalinism. uh, And she did that as a sort of criticism of Putin. And I think there is nothing smarter than speaking out against the Russian leader in a TV show that's so camp in its content, he'll definitely never ever watch it. Good work. And then of course the Eurovision contest's new voting system confused absolutely everyone, making everyone suggest proportional representation would be better. And the British entry had lyrics in it like, we're in this together, uh, and predictably the rest of Europe absolutely hated it. So very political. And I asked you lot this week on the Twitters and the Facebooks what Eurovision songs you thought would best represent the Remain and Brexit campaigns. And a few of you replied with these little gems. Okay. at Unreal McKay said, Boris certainly seems to be equating Brexit with Waterloo. At Real Neil Turner, he says, I can't decide, so it'd have to be Making Your Mind Up by Bucks Fizz. I think that's appropriate for many of the people in the UK at the moment. Um... At Fluff Logic says, uh, Bromaine has to be Better Together by Jack Johnson, uh, and Brexit has to be Sail This Ship Alone by Beautiful South, <laughs> which is, I think, probably slightly too poetic for either of those campaigns. Um, at Daniel Woodrow, he says, uh, Love shine a light into Farage's head so we can have definite proof that it's empty, and why do I always get it wrong for Boris? doesn't matter it doesn't matter if he gets it wrong people will still like it that's the problem um at scott mckeating he says uh the gray people because i'm bored fucking shitless of all of this and nuncio2 says not sure about brexit as a whole but ooh, are ah, just a little git for michael gove perfect and now a super super quick. Help 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 help. It's the partly big society. There's a really nice petition on 38 Degrees, which, yeah, look, that may mean it might amount to nothing other than you get emails every two minutes about every single petition ever about everything ever. Um, But look, this one's a really good cause, so do check it out. Um, This one's created by Chris Peach, and it's a campaign to install proper lighting on all major paths in Glasgow's Queen's Park. If you've ever been there, it is a great and really, really lovely park in the day. Uh, But at night time, it sort of changes a little bit, uh, as I once discovered when thinking I could shortcut to a gig. uh, And instead, I got chased by a very angry drug addict. Uh, Although the energy I had on stage that night will never be matched. Um, The petition only needs 500 signatures more to reach its target, to get all the proper lighting uh, for all the paths and make it a safer and nicer place for all the people there. Um, And it's already got some really good backing from local councillors. So... Uh, do head along to the 38 Degrees website, I'll also tweet it from our account and Facebook it, and search for Light Up Queens Park and get signing. And that's all for this week. Thanks to at Budgie on Twitter for one gag. Uh, do follow him and bug him to write more stuff. Um, and as always, you can drop me a line too via at Parpole Bro on Twitter, uh, Parpole Bro on Facebook, or, well, you know, whichever email you like. I mean, really, it would cheer up the empty inbox if you sent them to partly political gmail.com. It would feel a little bit wanted. But you know, I can't tell you what to do. I'm not your dad. Well, at least not officially, anyway. Also, please, please, please keep the iTunes reviews coming in. I honestly don't care what they say anymore, as long as you stick a five-star rating on them. Yes, I am that shallow. This week's show was brought to you by the number Hitler and the letters Hitler and Hitler.